got a great sound tone to play, you know. Just, uh, uh. Hello? <laughs> Have you ever snubbed a lady? Um, we had a technical problem. Are we on? Can we? Yeah, <laughs> we're on there. Can I swear? Welcome to Crunch and Roll. I'm John Fox, known to some as Foxy, done breakfast shows across the UK, more recently some work for the BBC. My guest today has tried his hand at stand-up comedy. He's written several musicals, even had two songs in the charts, and that on its own would be an impressive CV. But Daryl Denham also happened to have a Premier League radio career. Over the next hour, he takes us from his early DJing career to national radio via an infamous X-rated late-night show and also quitting live on air. The strong language and memories of a long-forgotten song from the South Park movie. Let's crunch and roll. Oh, yeah. Daryl, how are you? Hello, John. You're right. Yes, I'm very good. The, the legend, Daryl. I've done Denham. about that, but um, <laughs> I think if you've been in radio long enough um, and managed to cling on, and, and more people know your name, maybe that's that's perhaps what it is. I think every everybody knows your name. Do they? Yeah, absolutely, Daryl. Okay. Do you I'll, not think I'll, that? Well, yeah, maybe. Yeah. You know I do, it. I do, no, do you know it, it's that doesn't always sit well. One of the you know, one of the things that PDs have always criticised me for doing is not mentioning my name on the radio, and I hate it. I, I've never been a big fan of it. Um, if people are that bothered, they'll find out, and if they're not <laughs> that bothered, then it doesn't matter. You know, because it's. Do, do you know I'll, this is going to end up being a therapy session? I can tell, John. Um, <laughs> I, I listened to um, Hurst's show with you. Yeah. Um, and here's a significant difference. Hursty has always been a huge radio geek. I don't mean that yeah, disparagingly. Yeah. No, but, no. but And I'm not. I can't imagine anything more boring than going up Emily Moore. I mean, it really, <laughs> really wouldn't appeal to me. I was like, what I, what, why would I want to do that? And I think radio has for me, has been the vehicle to do what I love, rather than... I mean, yeah, I'll, I'll, we all get a little kick when we, you know, kiss a vocal, but um, yeah. it's that's not, for me, that's not like, oh, I just want to hit that 37-second vocal, uh, you know, that 37-second intro, it's really important. It's, it's not really about that. For me, it's, it's about being an outlet for creativity, and it might be telling a great joke... Um, or it might be some, you know, con- clever piece of production that you've made that I want to share with people. That's yeah. what I get the buzz out of, rather than radio. I mean, I can't, I can't tell you the make of the CD player and the microphone and God knows what. <laughs> it just doesn't matter to me. But to, to real radio enthusiasts, you know, that's integral to the part of the love of, of what it is. So it's a vehicle for what I love doing, rather than a love of radio per se. I'm pleased to say that we both started in, let's call it entertainment, um, in the same way because um, I read that you had a mobile disco company oh, yes. when you were when you were very young, and so did I. Mm. I had a, I had a, when I was 11 years old. Uh, and by the way, Daryl, I had the best name of, mo- of any mobile disco company. It was called Sounds So Good, which had it, I, very clever. I That's mean, very very good. Thank you very much. No, Darryl. well done. No, I love it. Yeah, yeah. So you started but with mobile. I mean, can you remember how much you used to charge? Oh. God, 50 quid? Wow. Big money. Do you know, actually, when I was at school, the the mobile disco thing was just an extension of my love, which was music. So passionate about music. And and that's the common thread throughout my whole life, is is music, which has always been the driver for me. One of my best jobs ever was working in my local record shop. I worked there on a Saturday, and then during the summer holidays, and just... Adored that job. But yes, yeah, so mobile discos, as soon as I was old enough to sort of, you know, I don't know, I think I was 13 when my mum and dad bought me a secondhand sort of mobile disco setup and a big yeah. suitcase full of records that I'd never heard of to go with my growing collection of, of records that I'd go out and buy. Because I did a paper round, so every penny that I earned from the paper round would be spent in the record shop. And then working in the record shop on Saturdays, of course, I never took home money, I just took it home in, in vinyl. And then suddenly I had a, there was a reason I had to buy these records because I was now doing mobile discos. But, but yeah, I loved it. My dad, bless him, um, would drive me anywhere and everywhere on a Saturday, Friday, Saturday to do the gigs. And, of course, those were the days before mobile phones, so I'd 
do a house party and they'd say it finished at 11 o'clock and my dad, bless him, would turn up at 11 o'clock and they'd ask me to do an extension till about three in the morning. And my dad would sit outside of the car for three, four hours. Oh. Yeah, um, <laughs> until I finished and, you know, God bless him. Also, I could earn an extra 10 or 20, you know, whatever. But I'm big money in those days. You know, it was, yeah. it was good money. And I, I loved it. I absolutely loved it. And, of course, that, I suppose, pointed me more towards the hospital radio, which was the next step, um, and then into radio. In fact, it was a guy who used to come into the record shop on a Saturday, Ken, and we you know, got talking, you know, as you invariably did with the regulars. And he said, oh, have you thought about joining hospital radio? And I said, well, I, th- I thought about it, but I've never really... You know, you should come up there. You know, it's a really nice bunch of people, and you- you'd love it. And eventually I plucked up the courage to go up the hospital and to have introduced myself um, and never looked back. So this was... Radio Forest, which it was. was Epping uh, in yeah. Essex. Um, yes, and, could. and what's nice is that, that you're still involved with very much that with, station with, today. Yeah, I think Hospital Radio. It, it, I don't want to be disparaging t- to the to the, the many volunteers, but sometimes it can be the blind leading the blind. You know, it can be people who have good intentions but no real knowledge passing that lack of knowledge on to other people. I was really, really lucky in that that I joined and there was a chairman there called Stuart McDonald, became a really, really close friend of mine. We lost him a couple of years ago and, and it's it's still really raw. But Stuart was chairman. He was a TV director and in the 80s, 90s, noughties, I mean, he really was a big player in TV. But he got the media and he, him and there was other people in fact uh, Ian Jonas worked at the BBC as well uh, Richard Murrell was one of the afternoon boys one of Steve Wright's afternoon boys um, and, and these were the people who were running Radio Forest so if you wanted to learn and were keen then these these people were passing on great skills and advice and, and hugely supportive and I'd spend every every waking moment at that radio station and, it, you know, it, it was like, OK, you want to learn? Come and learn. And you, you'd do your show once a week. But when the station was off air... and it, I mean, the, the, the equipment and the studios were pretty much professional. It was a brilliant setup. Um, and, I, I mean, I learned how to edit tape and record and multi You know, bouncing from one reel of tape to another. And, and, and I'd be there till 3, 4 o'clock in the morning. And I'd go up there every night. You know, I'd sort of home from school or from work, you know, going up there and just learning and, and taking in as much as I possibly could, experience and, and all that kind of thing. And and without without that, I wouldn't I wouldn't have had the career. Uh, and, and I've always felt that, which is why, you know, I'm still very good friends with a lot of the, the members there today. And I don't still do a show, but, you know, still like to sort of stay in touch and stay involved in some way. Um, good on you. Good on you, because yeah. I, I know that many people do it uh, myself, and then you leave, and then you never go back. But it's good sure. that you're still in. You know, you still you appreciate the the foundations that they gave you. Do you know? Funny enough, I mean, Radio Forest has been responsible for a few other um, very successful presenters. And the day I arrived, the very day I arrived, there was a presenter on air. It was a Sunday evening who was doing his final show before moving on to um, take up a gig in professional radio. And I literally, just like, one in, one out. I heard his very last link, and his name was David Prever. David Prever did his last shot the day I arrived, and off he went, I think, with Harrywood and, and, and all over. And, um, and now he's at uh, BBC Oxford doing breakfast there, I think. Um, and our paths have, have crossed from time to time over the years. But, um, but yes, yeah, so Radio Forest has been responsible for more than a few of us sort of making it into, uh, into the profession. And then you, you get your first professional gig. I didn't realise this until I did a bit of research into you, Daryl, because you're very much, in my eyes, uh, you know, a commercial radio legend. But you, you start. Oh, I thought you were going to say a whore. <laughs> <laughs> That's a different website. I've not checked that one out. But you, you, you started. Oh, you. You don't care where you go, do you? Uh, yeah, sorry. But you, you started at the BBC, BBC Radio Kent. No, I started at Invicta. Oh, did you? Okay. Yeah, no, it was, Invicta was, in fact, Invicta was quite a few years before that, actually. I did Top Shop for a little bit, Radio right. Top Shop at Oxford Circus, which always oh, scared me because you could see out and the customers could see in to the little studio under the escalator. Yeah. And that, and I never felt comfortable there. But my, the, the first sort of um, broadcast gig was on Invicta in Kent. 
and oh, it just felt like I'd won the lottery when I got that gig. And, and I, again, I absolutely adored it there and got sacked twice. So Did you? <laughs> so so I, saw, I think the advert was in Music Week and I um, sent them a demo and got a call saying, come in and, and, and have a chat. And this was at the, at the time when radio stations were... If they had a number of different frequencies, they were sort of making use of them. So Invicta was introducing a number of bespoke breakfast shows on its various frequencies, one for Ashford, one for Thanet, and one for Dover. The Ashford one was already up and running, and they were advertising for somebody to do the Thanet breakfast show. So they invited me down there, I went along for the interview, and they said, look, we've got a bit of a problem in that not only are we uh, looking for somebody to do the Thanet breakfast show in a month or so's time, but yesterday we sacked the guy who was doing the Ashford breakfast show, so we need somebody to do that from uh, next Monday. Uh, would you be available? I said, yeah, well, of course I would, yeah. Anyway, I got a phone call on the Friday saying, um, thanks for coming down, we'd love you to start Monday. I'm like, oh, my God, oh, my, oh my God. So, you so, got your, your first professional <laughs> gig, you go straight to breakfast. Well, that was the only, basically split the breakfast show. So there was a, a county-wide breakfast show and a bespoke breakfast show for Ashford, a bespoke breakfast show eventually for Thanet, and then they'd all come together for the rest of the day. So, yeah, the first broadcast gig I did was a breakfast show, yeah, um, f- for Ashford. And I, uh, I again... Like a, like a kid in a sweet shop, I absolutely adore that. I have my own studio, of course. So when I came off air, I didn't have to sort of barter for studio time. I could spend as much time in the studio as I wanted. And consequently, because I was, at the time was still commuting from Essex to Kent, overslept on more than one occasion. And on one particular day, got, got in at ten past ten for the show that should have finished <laughs> ten minutes before. I mean, I was devastated. But the boss said to me, he said, look, Darryl, I'd love to... And I'd love to sort of say we want to keep you, and we do, but we kind of need someone who's going to turn up for the show. I'm like, mm, I do get that, I do understand. <laughs> um, but, but, and then they said, look, you know, it's not the end, but it is sort of the end of the breakfast show. We're going to have to let you go. However, we're going to be opening a, a, a station in Essex next, sort of, in the next six months. So why don't you do the afternoon show on that? And I said, oh, that'd be great. They then phoned me up and went, oh, OK, um... Do you want to come in and cover for Caesar the Boogeyman? He's on holiday for a couple of weeks. Um, and Caesar did, I don't know if you've heard the name Caesar, Caesar the Geezer, Caesar the Boogeyman. Yeah. He did a sort of a, a, an anarchic phone in um, in Kent and then on Essex at some point. They did, did work on Kiss as well. But it was, it was, you know, real renegade sort of radio territory to the point where I covered for his two weeks holiday and he said I'd done something on air, which meant that the two weeks became about a month. So um, I've got, yeah, I'll do that. Uh, and then we sort of got into the holiday season and I was doing a couple of weeks of afternoons and a couple of weeks of drive, then mid-mornings or whatever. And they said, um, look, Eamon, Eamon Kelly, who did the overnight show at the time, he's not a, a big fan of doing overnights, um, so he'd rather do the afternoon show in Essex. How do you fancy taking over the overnight show? Of course I will, yeah, I'd love to. And so they, they took me back on, literally two or three months later, doing the overnight show, which was just tra- tremendous fun. Five hours a night, pick your own music, and wow. just basically, you know, go on, make your mistakes, and, and learn um, as much as you as you can. I was never going to oversleep for that one. So um, <laughs> it was it was tremendous, really was. And and you kind of got the feeling the boss wasn't listening. He probably listened from time to time, certainly on his, on his way in to do the breakfast show. It was Neil Taylor, but, but you know, you kind of felt you could get away with anything. So you you tried things and and you build a really really strong connection with your audience when you're doing that time of the day because I think they expect you to bother at breakfast and during the day, but when you do bother on overnights, they really appreciate it because a, a, a lot I mean certainly not these days I mean so many overnight services are just back to back music if yeah. you've got a live presenter who's actually bothering, the the audience realise and they really you know really appreciate it i think it was in a previous episode with i think it was emma scott and we were talking about i started uh, my professional career doing weekend overnights and she started did something similar mm. it's, it's a tough time to be on air isn't it because it can be quite soul destroying i never found it so did you not no not to, there was nobody else in the building we didn't have a security guard down there or anything i mean I, I, somebody else has said this to me at the weekend that they found overnights really really lonely and and I said, no, I, I didn't at all. I just, I don't know, I, I just took to it like a duck to water. We're having a party. Oh, yeah. 
So um, you go from there to. So where's your next move from there then? Well, that that ended in in um, in another sacking. <laughs> I, I set a tape off to this new station that was launching in Colchester, SGR Colchester, um, and uh, Danny Cox, wonderful, phoned me up and said, um, "We'd love you to you know be a part of the station um, and do the breakfast show and launch the station." Which was it's quite nice to say I was the first voice on the station, and I think the the, the buzz phrase at the time was Britain's oldest town with Britain's newest commercial radio station. Yes, and I worked there for a year, and then one of my old colleagues from Invicta who'd moved to BBC Kent got in touch and said, "Hey, do you fancy coming and doing some shows here?" And Chris Burns, Chris Burns, uh, was the editor at the time. Wow, um, and she. Uh, welcomed me on board and I did some cover and bits and pieces and then got given uh, a full-time job doing the early show which was actually which worked out really really handy because the guy who was oh god it was so complicated the guy who was my newsreader at SGR was uh, a Kiwi who had been brought over here lived in New Zealand brought up in New Zealand and came back home over with his family Tony Doe wonderful guy um and we got on really really well and he was my newsreader on the breakfast show um and he was quite keen to get some documentaries that commissioned by the bbc we had a chat and Stuart, um who i mentioned earlier from radio forest and and, and paul um who by then was the chairman um we, we set up a company and submitted some ideas to radio two and five i think and radio five commissioned us to make a series um called how radio won the war which i uh, produced and co-wrote with Tony, and I mean, what just a really, really interesting subject, and a fascinating, fascinating show to put together. And the fact that it's sitting in the BBC archives actually is quite nice because your daily breakfast show is here and gone, isn't it? But when you make something of sort of something more substantial, yeah, absolutely, it's quite nice that it's sort of sitting there um, on the shelf somewhere. So I do the early show on Radio Kent, and then go into uh, our studio and spend all day long working on a screen putting together you know audio from the 30s 40s and interviews with people like Frank Gillard and um and Charlie Chester and uh, Jonathan Dimbleby uh, talking on behalf of his father we got Robert Powell to narrate it and it, you know it's a, it's a proper BBC documentary an eight part um we got some really good reviews in the paper uh, at the time so, uh, so actually it worked out really nice I can walk, you know the radio I've always worked really hard on my radio shows but a radio Kent the early show didn't require too much from me so consequently I could go and focus on something else during the day I wouldn't be able to do it with a commercial breakfast show because you spend all your day prepping for the next day's show yeah. but but as timing worked out it, it was really really handy and then they moved me from the early show to the late show the phone-in and as much as I appreciated it, I realised it wasn't for me. It was, I mean, it, this was 1995, and there's me wanting to talk about the Battle of Britpop, and I've got 80-year-olds phoning up and talking about their bunions, <laughs> and there was this sort of disconnect <laughs> between me and the audience. It's like, yeah, no, this isn't... So um, I, I left there and from there moved on to Chilton. So tell me about Chilton, Chilton FM. I saw an, I think I saw an advert... I don't know where I saw that. Maybe it was Music Week or something. And I sent in a demo and literally got a phone call the very next day from Steve Orchard, who said, oh, got your demo. Any chance you could pop in this afternoon? Yeah. And what it was, I think, Steve and the expanding GWR network were in Dunstable that day, and they had an Australian consultant over, I think Peter Don, I want to say. He was in town... And, and obviously Steve thought, well, look, if we're going to do some sort of um, meetings, interviews, then it'd be good if Peter's in on it. So I went over there and they basically said to me, look, this was late December. I remember because I started in the week between Christmas and New Year. Said, look, basically, we've got a breakfast show at the moment. It's a boy-girl breakfast show. And they're not getting on. It's got to the point now where they do alternate days because they won't spend... <laughs> Oh, really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wow. Yeah, it got that bad. So we've taken the decision to let him go and keep her because, you know, and because I then went on to work with her, I know she's a brilliant broadcaster. Um, she's Claire Ashford. Um, right. And 
but her and the guy who I won't mention really weren't seeing eye to eye. So, you know, um, we really need somebody to start as soon as possible you know, so that we can actually have a two-headed breakfast show for once. Um, so I went in in the week between Christmas and New Year and met up with Claire, uh, and we got on really, really well. This is 1995, so yeah. the possibility of having a solo female breakfast show presenter didn't even cross their minds. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, you had to have boy-girl or else, you know, it didn't fit the GWR format. And I understood, I understood, still understand the GWR thing. It was never going to be the best paid breakfast show, but but they obviously had a format that they'd, they'd thought through and worked out, and they had group comedy that they made and spent money on, which yeah. they then distributed, and, you know, and this this GWR Bible that they wanted. And then it gave them some control over the content and quality of their breakfast shows without having to spend a fortune on, you know, very creative people in each... I mean, I don't mean to take away. You're not very creative, are you? Nor are you. So come on. It wasn't. It wasn't <laughs> like that. But but it, it gave them a certain amount of of control uh, of the, the level of uh, of quality that that they spread around the group. So Claire and I got on really really well and were you know quite creative. And I think think probably had been in radio longer than some of the other breakfast show pairings. Yeah. And we do stuff of our own and. When we'd have meetings with Steve Orchard, he was really, really supportive. And he was of the opinion, look, if the, if the group comedy doesn't work for you, don't worry. You guys, you know, what you're doing is fantastic, so carry on doing what you're doing. And the following week, we'd have a meeting with Dirk Anthony, who'd go, why aren't you using the group comedy, boys, girls, <laughs> um, team, whatever? Um, you've got to use it. This is what we're buying for. This is good stuff. It's not brilliant, is it? So it, there was that sort of disconnect. And it's, you're not going to turn around and go, but Steve said. <laughs> but there was that, you know, Dirk saying you've got to follow this, whereas Steve sort of uh, is affording us a little bit more, perhaps, respect, I don't know, professional respect, the saying, look, you guys are actually doing stuff which works for you and you don't have to fit the mould, perhaps, in the way that some less experienced presenters do. Anyway... That yeah, it didn't sit comfortably. I was, I mean, I was quite a big fan of GWR before that, and understood what they were trying to achieve. But sort of Dirk having sort of come down heavy like that, it sort of you know it didn't leave me with a desire to want to stay too long. And then this big lad from up north came down to see me, and went, "Hey, soft lad, come and work at Alum FM." Um, hang on, hang on, hang on, Daryl. Can I ever guess who that was? Yeah, you can. Was it Dave Shearer? Because <laughs> it was. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. The irrepressible. Um, the, the most mentioned on this podcast series ever is Dave Shearer. Yeah, and uh, we, he's going to come on. He's, he's agreed to come on as well. Oh, is he next. really? Yes, oh, he Dave's is. great. I, I he's love amazing. Dave. Yeah. Um, and, I mean, I was reluctant at first because it was a long way from home and, you know, yeah. having sort of um, lived all my life just outside London, Kent, Dunstable, these places weren't too far to travel. You know, Colchester was technically still in Essex, even though the other end of the county. But but Sheffield, oh, I'd never been up there before. Um, <laughs> so he said, no, come up, come up, come up. He, he came down and met up with me. Um, and it, in fact, it was Simon Ross, who I'd worked with briefly at Topshop, who gave Dave my name when Dave got to Hallam and was looking for a breakfast show presenter. And uh, we, I went up there and, and, and had a sort of, a chat with him and he showed me around and offered me a lot of money uh, um, and okay yeah okay this could work couldn't it so um yeah went up there and took over the breakfast show you know uh, and had four incredibly happy years at Hallam FM I mean that was it was an amazing breakfast show that you did that's very kind of you to say uh, we worked hard at it I mean it really was yeah. but it's not hard work if you enjoy it is it you don't you know right at Chilton, that's where Claire and I first met and worked together. Of course, at the at the time, the Late Show was presented by a certain Chris Moyles. Right, OK. Um, and we met literally the first week I was there, and I needed to use their studios in Milton Keynes, which is where he did the network Late Show from Milton Keynes. And I remember walking in, and he just walked up to me and gave me this enormous bear hug. Um, <laughs> he knew who I was, obviously, because I'd phoned him and spoke to him the day before. But um, and from that moment, we became, you know, the very best of friends. So around the same time that I moved up to Sheffield to do the breakfast on Hallam, Chris moved. Well, he didn't move. He stayed in his flat in Milton Keynes, but it was doing the weekend late show on Capital. And what would happen is 
Chris would do his weekend late shows and then on Monday morning would drive up to Sheffield and spend the entire week staying with me in Sheffield and we'd work on stuff together and it really became a sort of hotbed of production. We'd do songs and spoofs and sketches and all kinds of bits and pieces and he'd come in with me every day on the breakfast show and then on a Friday he'd drive back down to London and all the, these bits that I'd played out across the week on the Hallam FM breakfast show, Chris would play on the late <laughs> show on uh, on Capital at the weekend. And it worked perfectly um, until, of course, Chris went to Radio 1 and then suddenly he was doing the early show five days a week and he couldn't come up anymore. But for about a year, every week, Chris was uh, Chris was a house guest. And, I mean, he still refers back to that, the, the DJ house, where he'd come up and stay and, and he'd come into work with me every day, every day as well. So consequently, I mean, Dave Shearer, I don't know that they've ever worked together, but Dave Shearer was the PD at the time and Chris was sort of... <laughs> Uh, in the office and they got on like a house on fire so um yeah it was was a great time yeah and it was at that time when you were doing breakfast on hallam that you you, i mean this was quite a a unique idea because you did a late night adult version of the (laughs) breakfast show do you know i i because a lot of people talk about this because i've never heard anywhere else do something like this was it just a was it an outlet for you to be a bit saucy yeah well you'll know this john you're always trying to find new things to do and uh, and new angles and uh, and be as creative as you can on a breakfast show and invariably you'll come up with ideas you go can't do that can't do that in the morning we'd like to do that but and i just struck upon the idea that what if there was a way of you know doing all those more adult risky things on a show but it would need to be late night so and tony mckenzie again another great pd that I, i was lucky enough to work with um on more than one occasion uh, Tony was the PD. I said to him, look, how do you feel about an X-rated breakfast show? Maybe, I don't know, once a month on a Friday night. He went, yeah, could do. So that's basically what we did. And we, the parody songs would be that, you know, a little bit more saucy. I just thought of one. <laughs> just, <laughs> oh, dear, that got me in really trouble, a lot of trouble. Um, it was, you remember uh, Living La Vida Loca? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, Ricky Martin. Yeah, yeah, shoving it up a bloker was was. <laughs> I can't, if I if I say who it was about, then I get into trouble again because it's probably defamatory. Well, it is defamatory. So uh, anyway, so we we do sort of more X-rated parody songs and sketches and whatever, and it was the entire breakfast team. So we'd all do it, and it was, we'd go to the pub for a couple of hours and, you know, really have a good drink, and then we'd take a bottle of Jack Daniels into the studio with us and put big signs up so no-one could see what was going on in the studio so we could sit and they getting more and more pissed and, and had a whale of a time. It was only an hour long, once a month. Yeah. But actually, th- there was a, a huge value in promoting it as well because, you know, you'd spend the entire day saying, look, it's, it's X-rated, it's for over 18s over, so if you're under 18, don't listen red rag to a bull of course yeah you know? absolutely yeah. um and, and literally in the build-up it's starting in five minutes if you're under 18 turn off now <laughs> <laughs> Brilliant. i mean you're never going to be able to rage our that one hour you know once a month but it got talked about never got any complaints out on hallam really no 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 i think i think because it, it was us and because you know all the the presenters were on side and everyone got it you know, it was presented in the right way. What, <laughs> where the problems came was when they rolled it out across the group, because by then EMAP was, you know, was Metro and it was Key and it was City and it was Viking yeah. and Rock and, and so on. I think Paul Cavanagh actually was the group PD at the time. He said, yeah, this is a great idea. Let's, let's do a six-week series. And we <laughs> called it the Unshaven Haven. And, and, and maybe you, you, there's bound to be. Uh, and you and I will both know this, that, you know, if there's another breakfast jock who's doing the group-wide show and you're not, you want to, you kind of feel a little bit like, well, why is it him, not me? So you can understand why I don't even know who was doing breakfast on key at the time. Might have been a little bit miffed that, that you know, Daryl from Hallam was doing the group-wide show and not you. So you're not naturally going to get behind it and promote it perhaps in the same way as if it was a, a homegrown show. And so consequently, whereas we'd sort of soften the audience up in Sheffield, you know, places like Manchester and City and Liverpool and Newcastle, they hadn't softened people up in quite the same way. Right. So suddenly at 11 o'clock on a Friday, uh, 
Uh, maybe, maybe it was Sunday. I think it was Sundays we did the the group work thing. There was a group of us on air, effing and blinding, and you know, doing all kinds of things that they didn't expect. And in fact, I, I saw Hursty at the weekend, and she said to me, "You've got to tell the story about Uncle Fucker." So <laughs> here is the story about Uncle Fucker. On the very first, it's a song, by the way, from the South Park film. I'm not just gratuitously... Well, I'm gratuitously swearing, but there's a song in the South Park movie called Uncle Fucker. And, of course, it's the X-Rated Breakfast Show. It's the Unshaven Haven. Of course we can play it. So doing the group-wide show for the very first time, I decided to, to finish the show with Uncle Fucker because it was from a current movie and the production on that track was fantastic. And the orchestral arrangements par excellence. So... Uh, <laughs> We finished the first one with shut your fucking face, Uncle Fucker. Shut your fucking. You don't mind swearing on this show, do you, buddy? Oh, absolutely. So good. And it finishes suck my balls. And I went, thanks, Sam. Good night. See you next week. Now, (laughs) apparently, in Newcastle, Alan Robson was doing the evening phone in, which was now delayed by an hour because of (laughs) of this excursion into the world of X rated radio. Um, and if I follow this, this thanks and good night. And there was like a pregnant pause. He went, well, I don't know what to make of that. Um, right. If you want to give me a call uh, and tell us what you're doing for the needy this Christmas. Uh, <laughs> 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 I don't think anybody phoned him about the needy. I think all he got was... An hour of complaints. <laughs> what the hell was that? Uh, so, um, that is an amazing story, Dale. Yeah. So, so the radio authority got complaints from every other radio station apart from Hallam. But actually, they were incredibly understanding and just said, look, we, we get what you're trying to do and we, we, we would just suggest you maybe dial it back a bit. Uh, so we sort of softened it a little bit for the next five episodes in the series, but they they, <laughs> they didn't get me to do a second series of those. Well, there's um, stuff called the commission. The Well, I'm all for being open-minded, but I'm not all for discussing this live on air. Thank you. We are profoundly uh, sorry. Oh yeah. Right. So Hallam FM. Um, the the next move for you, you, you go to Birmingham in 2000, and you go. Yes. I mean, this is a big station to heart. Yeah, yeah. Um, Can you? How did all? How did that happen? How did you? Did you get a phone call? Nowadays, we're used to sort of turning on any computer, or any mobile phone, and you can hear any radio station around the world, twenty four seven. Back then, of course, you had to be in the TSA to hear it. So Alan, unbeknownst to me, had been travelling up to Woodall Services and sitting there for you know huge chunks of the breakfast show, recording it on a cassette player and taking it back. To, and again, doing research with uh, audience test groups and playing them clips of audio from my breakfast show at Allen to see how it went down with their listeners wow. in Birmingham. And I mean, presumably the, the results was were quite favourable because he then offered me the breakfast show. And after four, you know, great years on Hallam, I I thought, and do you know what? I never intended to move away from home, and I always felt like I was a guest and made incredibly welcome um, while I was in Sheffield. And I love Sheffield as a city, I really do. But it was never home, and it was never going to be a permanent home. And with heart, I saw a route back to London that that didn't exist within Bower because, uh, well, EMAP at the time, but their, their London stations were Kiss and then Magic. And I've never really been a dance jock, so Kiss was never an option. Yeah. And Magic just didn't seem to work for me either. So I, I never saw a, a London option within Bower, whereas Hart, obviously, there was you know a natural progression. So I took it and handed in my notice at Hallam and worked six months' notice um, and and left. I bought, I bought a drum kit on the, my last day, though, it had been such an epic ride for four years. Um, everyone sort of said, oh, you've got to do a really big send-off for your last day. So the last break I mean, I cried on my last breakfast show. Um, it, it just became very, very emotional. And one of our... Hursty mentioned this when she, she spoke to you. We used to regularly go to this place called Hammerhands. Yeah. And after my last breakfast show, 
we all went to Hanrahan and spent the myself and my producer Trevor spent the entire day there, and of course pretty much everyone from the radio station popped in and out at some point during the day. And those at the radio station that weren't working, I think Dixie didn't do Friday night, so he was there for the duration. And Lynn, our newsreader, um, now his wife, was there all day as well. And various other people, even the office, you know, uh, D Ford's PA came down and joined us because she was wow. still based at, at Hallam. So consequently, we were drinking all day long. Uh, Emma's, I think it was Emma Scott's boyfriend at the time was a drummer and Dixie's a brilliant drummer. And I was talking to them, of course, very drunk at the time. So I've always wanted to play the drums. I can just about get by on a keyboard or a guitar, but I always went. Oh, there's a drum shop in Sheffield. They've got practice rooms and everything downstairs. Oh, let's go get a cab. Let's get a cab now. So we got in a cab. <laughs> literally, got a cab. Literally two miles down the road into this this drum shop, um, and we went downstairs to the practice kits. And Dixie was brilliant, and Jason was brilliant. And I'm like, boom, boom, boom. <laughs> I've, I I need to buy a drum kit. Of course you do. How much are drum kits? 250 quid's the starting price. I love one. So I, I bought a drum kit that very day, which was delivered the next day. And literally, I set it up and then packed it away a week later when I moved to Birmingham and then put it in storage for about 10 years before thinking, <laughs> I might, might as well sell that, really. Um, but it's one of those, you know, one of those moments you remember. Where have you been? Um, um, Trevor, just when we got back, said, well, where have you been? I said, I've been to, uh, been to the drum shop. <laughs> and and bought a drum kit uh, <laughs> as you as you do couldn't just buy one couldn't just buy a snare had to buy the whole bloody kit but um but yeah no it was it that was a, a very memorable day just going back to that so there was obviously a lot of love for you at hallam you know for, for everybody to come out and, and say their goodbyes because it takes a lot for people to do that and and i've been through that same situation at one station did you did you ever think, oh, maybe I've made the wrong decision? Because there's always that chance that you move to another station, like I did when I moved from Viking to 210, mm. where we went from Party Central at Viking and EMAP to 210 FM, where people just didn't even drink, and that wasn't the culture I was used to. Did you ever think, oh, maybe I've made a mistake? No, no, I never thought I'd made a mistake. Okay. Um, however, I was very reluctant to make the move, because I did love... Um, my time at Hallam, and and I think as you, when you're the breakfast show presenter, you've got a certain amount of responsibility to sort of lead the team from the front as well. And like you say, I mean, we often had big, big parties, and everybody from the radio station would, would you know, once or twice a year would come over to because Trevor and myself and producer used to share a house because we both moved to Sheffield at the same time and it just made perfect sense we'd say okay well let's let's have a party in a couple of weeks time so everybody from the MD you know to the cleaners would be invited to come along and be a part of um the, the parties and I mean <laughs> some of them became quite messy and quite quite legendary but so, so yeah we were very a very tight team but but and maybe this is what you what the difference for you is um, as well is is at Hallam, I came from Essex. Trevor, my producer, came from Oxford, Oxfordshire. Uh, Emma Scott came from Cambridgeshire. Brett Harley was from Chester. So yes, you had Anthony Anthony Gay from Sheffield, and you had uh, Hursty from Barnsley. But we were all unattached and all sort of looking for friends in this new part of the world so we naturally got on well with each other and, and sort of would go out drinking and socializing with each other when i got to heart i mean it, as much as it was a lovely place to work a lot of the people that a lot of the presenters there were already settled some had kids if they weren't married they were that much older so socializing at the weekend wasn't top of their agenda they had other priorities outside the radio station so that for me and because it, it was a slightly older radio station the presenters were that little bit older as well and that to me was the difference um between the two cultures so yeah i was very very sorry to leave but i knew it was the right thing to do and did you enjoy your time at heart because i mean it's a different world to Hallam. yeah i did and i i was very lucky to work for alan carruthers who was a great pd and and really got it um, and, and Trevor, my producer, had moved with me as well. So, right, okay. but I enjoyed it. But we were a bit of an island at heart in Birmingham. Um, 
got the support from the, the management, but but I just felt we were a little bit of an island because the, the other presenters had other things in their lives rather than the radio station, and we didn't. <laughs> um, but I did get the chance to work on Heart London fairly regularly at the weekend, which right. was kind of one of the main reasons for going there. I think it's worth pointing out that you did a sterling job in Birmingham because, of course, you, you won Sony. Um, yeah, Sony Award. I was very proud of that. I still am. Yeah. Um, I mean, we, we got some decent figures as well and became the first breakfast show to beat BRMB in Birmingham because Les Ross had reigned supreme for yeah, yeah. Um, forever. I uh, did the breakfast show there for about 26 years and we became the first breakfast show. I don't know, I don't know if Les was still doing it when we took over. But here's a funny, here's a funny thing. Les and I, so we worked literally... Because you'll know both radio stations in the same road, Broad Street in Birmingham. Yeah, uh, I love Birmingham, by the way. What a great city! It always gets a bad rap, doesn't deserve it. It's a great city. Um, and we spent 18 months working together and met at Buckingham Palace. <laughs> How did that happen? Yeah. Well, for some reason, um, the Queen of the Royal Family decided they were going to have a media night <laughs> and they invited various representatives of the radio industry uh, and well I suppose TV industry because people like um, Paul Gambaccini and Jonathan Ross and that were there to uh, a reception and that was the year I'd just won my Sony so my name was on their list and I got there um, and I was sort of talking to a couple of people um, and, and this little girl was just went hello and I looked and I was a bit, I'm Les Ross. I'm like, Les, Les, the legendary Les. And we'd never met. Alan had worked with Les for years, and now was PD at heart and was working with me. And he said, oh, you know, Les often comes in at Christmas with presents for everyone. But he hadn't that particular year. But we met at, uh, at Buckingham Palace and stood there chatting away for a couple of hours at the expense of the Queen, which was lovely. <laughs> Well, I've met Les several times. That, I've met the man, Queen several times. I've no, got, no, no, I've no. Met no Her Majesty <laughs> several times. <laughs> no, I've met I've met Les, and boy, he can talk. Like you know, he's great. You might as well sit back, relax, and just let him crack on. Yeah. If it's about trains, that's it. Game over. <laughs> no, we never got on trains. I'm afraid. <laughs> All right. So you do Hearts in Birmingham. Yes. Um, and then and then Virgin in 2002. You go to Virgin Radio. Yeah, I. Um, it was the third time they'd offered me the breakfast show on Virgin. I don't know if you remember this. Back in the late 90s, Capital were going to buy Virgin when Richard Branson was selling. Um, I think it was Clive Dickens got in touch with me and invited me in and said, we're building special studios because we're buying we're buying Virgin Radio. And what we're going to do is we're going to split AM and FM. Um, we want you to do the breakfast show on the national AM frequency, which is going to be poppy rather than rocky. I'm like, oh, wow, that sounds fantastic. Move back home straight away. Super. And then literally Chris Evans bought the radio station out from under their noses. Um, and I think there were a few people mighty miffed at Capital, but Chris Evans bought it and did the breakfast show. And I'm thinking, I was going to be doing the breakfast show. Oh. <laughs> and I think as a response, that's, that's I think when Capital bought XFM. Then when I was at heart, Bobby Hayne got in touch with me and said, look, Paul Jackson's going to be our new PD, but he's on gardening leave at the moment. But he sort of sent word ahead that he wants you on the station. Because although Bre uh, Evans is still doing the breakfast show, we're not sure how much longer. And we want a breakfast show host on drive, ready to take over at any, any point. And I thought long and hard about it. And my heart was still set on going to Heart London, which was kind of like my, my plan. Know, do well yeah. at Heart Birmingham, and then when the opportunity comes, move to Heart London. So, so I turned down the job, um, and they announced that they were going to give it to Steve Pink. Right. Went on holiday to America. I remember sort of every day checking out the computer, reading the stories it's unfolding. So Steve Pink basically was given the job that I had been offered, drive until Chris Evans decides to leave. Uh, uh, Chris Evans then went on his week-long bender and, uh, and self-destruct and left. So Steve Pink, when he arrived at the radio station, went straight in on breakfast rather than doing any time on drivers. So when I'm sitting there in America thinking, you'd be on a national breakfast show, you dickhead. If you'd said <laughs> yes, you'd be doing a national breakfast show. So I came back from America and literally within a week, I had two meetings. Paul Jackson was back in touch saying, we still want you. Can I meet up with you and try and convince you? And as I say, this, this, this other man... 
um, was d doing the, the PD at Heart in London. Um, and I thought, yeah, give him another chance. So I went out for a meal with two people within the space uh, of a week. And it was abundantly clear that I was never going to work with that man in London ever again. And that Paul Jackson is a fantastic um, entertainer, host. Um, working for him was a slightly harder uh, challenge. Oh, really? But um, socially, the man is just enormous fun. Uh, we had a fantastic lunch, got on remarkably well. Uh, he offered me lots and lots of money. And I thought, oh, I can't turn this down, can I? Given that my route to London and heart has just been blocked. So I decided that the, that the route ahead was going to be Virgin at the third offer. I thought somebody somewhere is trying to tell me that Virgin is part of your of your plan. So, um, yeah. Oh, yeah. So was it was it nice to be home? Yeah. Back in London? Do you know what? Virgin probably wasn't the right radio station for me and had Heart been an option, that was probably a better fit. But I've got no regrets. I mean, I had the most amazing time at Virgin. Great people, great team. Um, I, I moved home, uh, was able to buy a, a lovely house in Essex and lived the life and everything I'd ever dreamed of, you know, um, close to the family and friends. The house became party central during the summer. Of half a dozen barbecues a year where the entire staff of Virgin were invited along. Um, some really drunken parties, which I think Hursty may have touched on uh, when you spoke to her. Chas and Dave came to one of them, the Drifters at another. No. Uh, Tell me about Chas and Dave. I'm a massive Chas and Dave oh, fan. Oh, well, you'd speak to Hursty. I mean, we, we were standing there singing There Ain't No Pleasing You with the Chas and Dave literally standing right in front of us uh, singing the oh. song. But yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, tremendous fun, <laughs> tremendous fun. Um, in fact, I think there was about, I think we, we, we had this <laughs> um, little count up, I think there was about seven breakfast show presenters there at the time singing along with Chas and Dave's like, breakfast show, oh, how many of us are there? Um, just, yeah, just good fun. Um, but yeah, well, but, but sad, I'm not sure it was the right radio station for me and, um, yeah, of all the stuff, you know, I'm I'm proud of what I achieved at, at pretty much every radio station I've worked at, and I just don't think I hit them up. I think possibly because Virgin gave me everything I wanted, whereas if it had all gone tits up in Sheffield, I just got in the car and uh, get in the car and drive home. But at Virgin, because I got everything I, I I worked for, maybe I just approached it in a slightly more respectful way. You know, where, where is at Hallam and at Heart, if it all goes tits up, that's fine. But at Virgin, I couldn't, you know, you, you sort of almost treat it as if it's like this breakable piece of glass, whereas it didn't matter if it shattered in Sheffield, because there'd always be somewhere else I'd go, but but this was everything I'd create. No, I, I get that, because you, you've, you've, you've achieved what you, you set out to do. You, you've got home, you've got yeah. a huge radio station, and I, 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 yeah. see, I feel quite sad now, because you've just described all, you know, all that, you, you've achieved that dream, and then... You leave Virgin, you go, you go right back up north again. Yeah, you go to Century yeah. Northeast. Yeah, um, I'm not sure that was the right move either. Uh, what is it? In the words of someone like Dave Shearer, it's a, it's not the end of the earth, but you can see it from there. <laughs> the, the people of Newcastle were among the friendliest I've ever met, but Newcastle wasn't for me. I mean, I, I don't know what I was thinking just completely the wrong place and and having worked around the uk and got back home it, yeah it, it was a it was a bit of a slap to go all the way up there um so uh, yeah it didn't last very long in fact I, whenever possible i did shows from london i come down i literally booked a flight home every friday morning and a flight back up there every sunday night and it made more sense to book to book one for every week in advance because it was cheaper than waiting until you needed them so i didn't always use them but i booked every weekend to fly back to stansted and then back up there on a sunday because you famously i mean you resigned live on air at century yeah, yeah. was that because you were just so unhappy yeah. Partly, I mean, there was a couple of other reasons as well. So I was doing some shows from London, 
Um, and Giles was fine with that. Maybe, you know, Monday, come down for the weekend, stay for a Monday or, or come down on the Thursday and do the Friday show from a studio in London. Uh, and the Radio Academy, the Radio Academy, the Radio Authority were fine with it as well. But they'd caused a stink with Metro because I think Tony Horn had started doing his Metro shows from Manchester. Where he'd moved to Manchester, had gone back to Metro, but him and his family were living in Manchester. So he'd do some or all of his shows on Metro from Manchester. And Century had kicked off about this. So me doing shows for Newcastle from London sort of made them look a little bit like hypocrites. So the pressure for me to do five days a week from Newcastle didn't come from the, the radio authority insisting on, you know, promise of performance or anything. It came from internally. Um, and they said, look, if you, you know, we need to do either do five days a week from uh, Newcastle or, or we're going to have to let you go. Um, so I thought about it for about 10 minutes and uh, and decided that, well, it's going to be go then, isn't it? But I knew that as soon as I say that, I said that, that would be the last thing I said. So um, I won't tell them. I'll just announce it on air, knowing that that will be my final show. And uh, and that's what happened. But Not to worry, because you returned to Hallam place that you have got so much so much love for yes and actually i don't know if it's if it's something to do with the, the water in sheffield but it was it was just as much fun was it? so i was going to ask you i was going to ask yeah. what i mean what's yeah. it like returning back to a station a former station well i was a yeah a, a bit cautious as you you could understand i mean john had taken over the breakfast show i mean still there yeah. now i mean how many 23 Incredible years and, and and he's a brilliant presenter, a brilliant breakfast show, um, and I was I was doing the mid morning show, um, and then we had Matt Mackay uh, and Dave Henning, who um, Matt and Dave are among my very best friends. They um, Dave was doing a weekend show, um, and we'd socialise every day. I mean, every day we were in the pub. Um, Nick, this is what was lovely. Phone Boy used to do the late, the evening show and then Nick Majerison would do the late show and they'd, they'd take it in shifts at the pub. So whereas Matt, D- uh, Dave and myself would be there most of the evening, Nick would be there until about nine o'clock when he had to go in to prepare for the late bit. And then about 10 past 10, phone boy would turn up, having finished his show and come join us in the pub. It was great because there was still that camaraderie. And again, I think it's because we were all that much younger, unattached from different parts of the world. Matt from Essex, Dave from Cambridgeshire again, sort of all come together and naturally found our friends within the radio station and still friends to this day. But it was specifically a one-year contract to the point where I think my final day on the radio station was a Tuesday because <laughs> it happened to be the 31st of January when the contract... No one said, do you want to go the Friday early or, or stay for a couple more days just to tidy yeah. it up? That was never even a consideration. It was like, well, your contract ends on the Tuesday, so your last day is the Tuesday. <laughs> uh, so then from there, Real Radio Yorkshire. So you stay stay in Yorkshire. You've, got, you've obviously got some love for Yorkshire. Oh, yeah, Definitely. Oh, absolutely, and, and, and as I say, Sheffield is such a wonderful, wonderful city, and I've got no regrets whatsoever about working there. It it just was never going to be a long term home. Tony McKenzie, ex Hallam yeah. FM PD, was now at Real Radio, and I phoned him up and said, "Look, in fact, no, in fact, they offered me the BBC Radio Sheffield offered me the breakfast show, and that all got really, really strange. They offered me the breakfast show, and we discussed." terms and money etc 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 and then the editor stopped returning phone calls and i had an agent at this point who was like phoning and emailing every day and just getting ignored and i i phoned this editor just out of the blue because he didn't have my phone number he'd done all the contact had been with my agent um and i phoned him out the blue and he answered i went hello it's daryl what's going on (laughs) I mean, if you've ever heard of it, it was like a candid phone call. The guy, I can't remember what the reason was, but the guy squirmed and was so uncomfortable. I mean, you know, just thought he could sort of keep his head down. And and, and I think, I don't know, I, I don't think he'd gone cold on the idea. I just think that other factors had changed and he didn't know how to say, I need to rescind the offer. 
But I got in touch with Tony McKenzie, and he said, yeah, you know, it'll be fantastic if you were available when I come work at Real, which is what happened. I went up to uh, Wakefield and worked there for uh, probably longer than anywhere else in my career. I mean, initially you go to do evenings, but then you do breakfast with somebody that I know, Gail Lofthouse, who is a hell of a character. She's a genius. And, And Gail and I shared the same sort of hard work philosophy, and she's incredibly creative. Yeah, I mean, I, I did I think did the late show or the evening show for about two months. They'd offered me the, do you know, actually, they offered me the breakfast show on, on Real Yorkshire when I went to Newcastle. And I think there was an element of, he's turned us down. And, you know, the, the two Johns were a little bit, oh, come on then. You know, they, they weren't entirely convinced. And, and I, you know, I get there's a little bit of bruised ego when you offer somebody a breakfast show and they turn you down and go somewhere else. I get that. Tony, having worked with me at Hallam and, you know, enjoyed that sort of success together, was keen to get me on breakfast and the opportunity came up. So Gail and I took over the breakfast show and uh, and it was great fun while it lasted. Great fun. Do you enjoy working with other people? Yeah, yeah. I mean, as long as, you know, they get it. I mean, you know, I mean I've worked with plenty of different people over the years, but as long as they they work, they've got the right work ethic. And, yeah, I mean, Gail was was brilliant in that she you know we'd both work incredibly hard on prepping and recording and writing stuff she's a great writer and um yeah i mean i, I wouldn't carry somebody so i mean if, if it was somebody who was sort of looking for an easy ride then no i'd be the wrong i'd be a nightmare <laughs> um but but i've been lucky in that the people i've worked with have uh, have got it and have sort of and you know look it's radio i mean Hard work's not hard work, is it? It's it's it might be time intensive and it might be um, creatively intensive, but it's still fun. You know, surely it beats you know building a wall or or God forbid going down a mine or you know what I mean. This is it's not hard work. Um, so yeah, be grateful for what you got and and make the most of it. I say. So next move, smooth radio. So you do nights and then you, you cover breakfast for Simon Bates and then you get weekend breakfast. When they networked Real Radio, um, I was sort of surplus to requirements, I suppose, with a lot of other people. Suddenly they were networking from Manchester and they didn't really need a lot of people in Yorkshire anymore. So that all ended and, and John Simon said, well, look, you know, we might be able to get some stuff on Smooth in London for you. And they came to the weekend breakfast show and occasional overnights and then occasional bits of cover. Yeah, cover to, for, for Simon Bates on, on The Breakfast Show, which was a good fun. But, of course, the whole lot was then brought up by Capital, and Capital had its own agenda for um, for the radio station. And, I mean, I, I sort of felt in good company in that they let, they let me go at the same time they let... Pat Sharp and Kid Jensen and people like that go as well. So I thought, yeah. well, you know, okay. Well, if they're not going to keep the job, I'm certainly not. But their plans for Smooth, they had their and they've done very well out of it. I mean, the station does incredibly well, so they had a plan, and that plan was very music intensive. It was fun while it lasted, but it was, you know, it wasn't the kind of fun radio that I'd been used to making. But it, you know, it is what it is. So, and then obviously BBC Radio Kent. Um, in 2015 to do lights. It, it was a bit of everything at Radio Kent, actually. I, I got in touch. Do, do you know Gordon Davidson at all? Yes, he was at Kerrang. Yeah, it was, yeah. Um, Gordon was... I don't think actually he, was, he wasn't the editor at Essex at, at Kent at the time. He was he was technically a consultant, but he became the editor. Um, and he was essentially doing the editor's job. But, but they, were, they were using... My understanding of this was that they were using Radio Kent as a, a sort of test. And Gordon explained his, his theory, and I think it was actually his sound theory, that BBC Local Radio could be the place where the county comes to talk effectively. Um, and in every leading, in every market in Australia, in America, other English speaking countries, the speech station is the market leader. Uh, and then certainly in London, LBC does incredibly well. So why doesn't BBC Local Radio... And, and BBC Local Radio is a different thing everywhere it is. You know, in one county it might be a nostalgia station, in another county it might be primarily a phone-in station, in another county it's a, 
hodgepodge of, you know, like radio sounded back in the 70s. It's it's all over the place. So make BBC Local Radio stand, stand for something and become essentially the phone-in station in whatever area it is. And if they all do the same thing, you'll know that if you're in Manchester and you want to, you know, take part in a phone-in, it's BBC Radio Manchester. If you're in Oxford, it's BBC Radio. Turning Radio Kent into essentially a phone-in radio station. Now, obviously, there was plenty of people there, and that's the thing with BBC stations is that there are more staff presenters Stop like we'll wait till your contract finishes and say thank you very much. Oh, I've been through exactly the same situation. Yeah, yeah. There you go. So trying to get all these presenters who basically spent twenty years as a, a, a music presenter interviewing you know local celebrity about the local pie shop or whatever, uh, suddenly they were being told they had to do a phone-in about Brexit or, or whatever happens to be in Brexit. I mean, the amount of phone-ins I've done about Brexit, unbelievable. But anyway, so that that was the theory. It just took a long while to enact. And, you know, it was evolution rather than revolution. So it was happening very slowly. But Gordon said, look, come down, see how you fit in, see, you know, how you feel about the format as we're changing. And I got on okay with it. You know, having worked in music radio, that was not a challenge that that was something i'd not mastered but that was something i was very comfortable with and and doing the phone-ins actually yeah i i got on with that okay i mean that, that and that went on for for several years but then then covid hit and the edict came down that every show had to be four hours long and there could only ever be one presenter in the studio at any given time which meant that even though there were probably about eight daytime presenters on radio kent they only needed three so suddenly you've got five staff presenters surplus to requirements you don't need freelancers the the only issue i had though was i used to do a sunday evening show and the great thing of course beeps like a radio you could play what you wanted the idea was to it was a bespoke music show yes we did requests but um i picked a lot of the music myself and just what fun that was we doubled the audience over the space of the first year which i'm incredibly proud of but when they decided that they were going to start networking sunday evenings they networked bbc essex and BBC Essex had two two-hour shows. Hang on a sec. We're only allowed four hours. How are you having two hours? <laughs> yeah. You know, you kind of go, well, look, if you had your four-hour show, we could keep our four-hour show, and those are the two presenters. Instead, we're going to have two two-hour presenters from Essex networked into Ket anyway. Um, so that was that was the end of the, the BBC Local Radio uh, affair. And, and, well, since then, the only radio I've done was for a little radio station over in Tenerife. But I don't miss it. Do you not? No, I don't miss it. Which comes back to what I was saying originally, that radio's only ever been the um, it's been the vehicle rather than the, the, you know, the be-all and end-all. Yeah. I don't need to be on the radio every day. I do need to be creative. Um, I do a lot of writing um, and all kinds of other things, but I don't need to be on the radio every day. It was a technical problem. You heard something on there you shouldn't have done. Oh, yeah. Let's say um, the first time you were on Hallam uh, yeah. doing breakfast, who did you think was also good on breakfast at that time? And I'm asking you at that period of time because I wasn't on breakfast then, so you don't feel no. the need just to say. Uh, in 1996... Oh. Who do you think has been a good, also a good breakfast presenter? Okay, well, definitely Chris Miles. Yeah. Definitely uh, Chris Evans. To me, yeah. the best breakfast show presenter I've ever heard is Noah Edmonds. Innovative, um, revolutionary, just brilliant. Um, I think Big John is um, is a worthy successor. Uh, no, Big John. <laughs> no, seriously, John's John's a great breakfast show and doesn't get the. Um, I don't think he gets the appreciation appreciation he deserves. Danny Mine. Um, on, on the pulse is fantastic really uh, now that is yeah that's about it i think i mean uh, do, do you know the only place i ever wanted to work was radio one the only place and everywhere else falls short so and i never did and i don't want to now so <laughs> um but but i mean I'm, I'm a huge fan of mike reed at the time i'm not sure it, in the grand scheme of things it holds up I think Simon Mayo did a great breakfast show as well. Really good breakfast. Mark and Lard. I love you They're know. my heroes. Mark and Lard. Yeah, Mark and Lard were very, very really good. Yeah. Um, and again, I don't know if it's a North-South north, north south thing. It never quite had the same impact, Mark and Lard, as other breakfast shows. 
I'm going to say that. I mean, Moyles did, so maybe that North South thing is a is a bit of a myth. But Mark and I didn't work on breakfast, did it? It, it, you know, they did no, it for a short not time. Radio one. No, 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 no. And then moved them to afternoons, um, where I think they perhaps found more of a home on Radio One. But um, and if you sort of actually analyse what they were doing, it was very, very good, very, very it's amazing. A creative, amazing. which you know, which is what uh, you know, I get a buzz out of listening to things that are creative rather than just bland beige. You know, it's not just the radio you've done because you know you, you wrote the musical stand up. You did stand up comedy as well, which yeah. you know I think you're. I'm bonkers. You're nuts for trying. It's that. the scariest thing I've ever done. Oh Jesus! Yeah, um, yeah. It's it, it's really really scary. I mean, it's one of those things. I'm, I'm glad I tried, but I, and I was doing a breakfast show at the time, so doing late nights and early mornings were two things that both demanded a lot of your time. It was why the the, the stand up comedy sort of got put on the back burner. And as I mentioned, the musical, and also you know you wrote the the England song, Go England, yeah. to the tune of the Jams, going underground, yeah. amazing. Yeah. Again, the fact that I've had two, I've had two chart hits. Um, again, I'm really, really proud of that fact. Um, yeah, the jam, which number twenty six in the chart with Go England uh, from the England Boys and Pond Life and Ring Ding Ding, which was the original Crazy Frog song before the other one. Um, we just got shafted by the record label, reached number 11 in the chart. And we should have been at the top of the pops, but the other one was at number two at the time, and they didn't want two crazy frogs on the same top of the pops. <laughs> <laughs> but no, this, but musical theatre is, is one of the things that I'm really um, into writing. I've written about seven musicals, but they're hugely expensive to get off the ground. And I'm having various conversations with various people about funding and applications to the Arts Council and so on and so forth. But um, watch this space. Well, Daryl, thank you so much. It's been my pleasure for your time. Um, <laughs> I hope I haven't bored you. I think because I, it's it's a lot of this might be new information to you, but of course it's information I've, I've lived with for the last thirty years. Yeah, but you are one of the biggest names in in commercial radio. Every I started by saying that everybody knows your name. That's very kind. You know, so I think um, you know, and I've spoken to a few people, especially Hersey. There's a lot of love for you. Yeah, and I mean, Hersey and I go back a long way, and um, and yeah, she's been a good friend for a long time. Twenty five years ago, I was. I mean, it, we 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 what ninety seven? I think she started. So twenty six years ago, we 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 first met. Um, did she tell you about road trips down the west coast of America? Uh, she didn't know. Travelling across the uh, Golden Gate Bridge, listening to Starship, and we built this city. The city that rocks, the city by the bay. Oh, gee, yeah, but anyway. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you, what you want to do when, when she, what, you know when in a couple of years' time, once you've sort of been around the entire industry, get us on to do one together. Well, Daryl, we we always finish um, brunch and roll with. Um, I mean, have you ever done any voiceover work? Not really. No. Well, this is your big chance. You never know. You might get picked <laughs> up on this. Ta- take us away with the credits. You've been listening to Crunch and Roll with me, Daryl Denham. Subscribe on your favourite podcast app to get every new episode as soon as they drop. Crunch and Roll is a 969 Media production presented by John Fox and produced by Simon Bozowski. Bozowski. Oh, bollocks. Bollocks.